Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week also marked a very important turn in the protest over George Floyd's death. They started off very hectic, angry, violent, and in some cases, and there was a lot of looting, but they have largely turned very peaceful now, and the message is starting to get across. The protests have become more organized, and people of all backgrounds and ages are coming out to protest police brutality. It does seem like this time could be different in this current moment that we're in in America, and many are hoping for some type of change. For more on the change that these protesters want to see, we'll speak to Lam Tui Vo. She's a senior reporter at BuzzFeed News and was on the ground with protesters in Minneapolis. We've talked to a number of different protesters. Yesterday, we uh, went along and marched alongside some or walked along a march that went from the governor's residence all the way to the Capitol. And I think by talking to various people, we got the feeling that they were very intent on making this protest about the systemic issues that have plagued the Twin Cities for quite some time, for many years, for decades even. Um, and even though there was confusion about intruders from outside, and even though there have been other reports about violence and looting in um, downtown, for example, a lot of the buildings have been boarded up. I think it is very clear that they are all still very dedicated to issues around police reform and issues around inequities and other inequalities that are race-related in Minneapolis and in St. Paul. What are some of the ultimate goals that people want to accomplish there? I know one of the big things we've seen, been seeing is they definitely do want charges for all the officers that were involved when uh, George mm-hmm. Floyd was pinned down by, by the cops there. What are you hearing beyond that? Beyond that, what I've heard is that people want to vote out the DA. In many ways, uh, the district attorney has not been prosecuting police for a long time. And I think one of the most powerful things that I heard yesterday during a protest was one person taking the megaphone and saying, yes, voting for the president is important. But what's even more important is voting for the people who are in charge of your town, in charge of your city. And so what's been really, uh, really interesting to see is that there was really a a big front on rule changes, on activating civic engagement in, in a way that I think is also something that I've seen reminiscent in protests like the March for Our Lives. Young people are coming together. They have all this technology and information at their fingertips, and they're really going into issues that are large and systemic, not just viral at the moment. We're a little over a week since all of this started happening uh, with the death of George Floyd on Memorial Day. Do you get the sense that protesters are starting to feel heard? You know, beyond that, I was talking about Minnesota filing the civil rights charge against the police department and, and launching that investigation. Do you think that they will take these as at least small wins? The, the overall thing will take a long time to change, obviously. But do you think that they will take these as small wins? Do you think they're being heard now? I think I still feel like they, they are skeptical. Because they have every right to be, right? Like in many ways, they've seen their parents and their grandparents go through all kinds of inequities throughout time. Um, and I think for a lot of folks, this is still like a wait and see, okay, you're doing something, but wait and see kind of moment. 
And one of the things that I think speaks to that is that I spoke to a, a 16-year-old girl who was telling me that her mother went through very similar things. And one of the things that she really wants to continue is to make sure that this is not just something that ebbs and flows with the viral social web. And I think one of the things that really hurt her, she said, was that the president even called some of the protesters thugs. And I think when it comes very high from a Twitter account, that, uh, which is also one of the ways in which a lot of teens seem to get the information, it can be like, yes, maybe you're hurt somehow on the local level, but it still hurts to, she said, to hear that from a public official all the way at the top. You're obviously there on the ground with all the people and talking to them. But, you know, some of these marches are taking place at, at uh, you know, places of government. Uh, you said they marched to the governor's mansion, mm-hmm. all that. Uh, are there any officials that are out there at least acknowledging the people, interacting with them at all? I think we saw a few. We've heard from protesters that, that the governor um, came out to see but may not have been listening to the stories of folks. Um, and then we saw a few public officials at the Capitol sort of standing on the balcony from afar looking at the protesters. But what we did see that was interesting was that there was a sergeant from the National Guard. He is also um, an African-American and he is also someone who he said works in diversity issues for the National Guard. He came in and actually talked to the protesters directly. This man came into the circle, hugged a bunch of protesters, and then also said, let's start a prayer circle, and then talked about how this is a difficult time, and sort of like addressing the maybe generational issues about wanting change immediately and wanting to see change over time. That's exactly what I mean, actually. Some acknowledgement that they're being heard, you know, and we're seeing some of this across the country, police chiefs, other police that are taking a knee with protesters, showing them that they're being heard. And as I said, these the bigger issues will take time, but at least we're getting these moments in between of solidarity there. Lam Tweet Bo, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. And as people are turning out for protests all across the country, the other big story, the coronavirus pandemic is still with us. And while COVID-19 was initially thought to be a respiratory disease, many of the symptoms have another thing in common, poor blood circulation and blood vessel damage. 40% of deaths from coronavirus are related to cardiovascular complications. For more on how this disease is starting to look like a vascular infection instead of a purely respiratory one, we'll speak to Dana Smith, senior writer at Elemental. I mean, it's a really bizarre infection. And I want to be clear, you know, coronavirus is definitely still infecting the lungs. People do still have pneumonia like we initially thought they did. But like you said, there's a lot of really bizarre other symptoms that have emerged, things like strokes and blood clots, a lot of cardiovascular complications that you don't typically see with a normal respiratory disease. So it's emerged in the last month or two that it could be that the virus is not only infecting cells in the lungs and the respiratory tract, but also infecting blood vessel cells. And that's really unique. Not many viruses do this, and we don't think there's any other respiratory viruses, as far as we know, that do this also. So the original SARS virus, influenza viruses, don't infect these blood vessel cells. So it's really unique for SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus in particular, and it could explain a lot of these really strange and really deadly complications that we're seeing. So let's talk a little bit about how it progresses through the body. SARS-CoV-2 goes through the body and connects to these ACE2 receptors that are usually in the nose and throat. And from there, what happens, it can start destroying some lung tissue and it can break open some blood vessels. And then it can start attaching to all these other 
cells that have to do with the blood vessels. They're called endothelial cells. And then it creates this immune response and then everything starts going haywire. But it seems that all these other side effects seem to be kind of coming from the blood vessel problems. So we know that SARS-CoV-2 gets into the virus, has to latch onto these ACE2 receptors. And there are ACE2 receptors all through your nose and your respiratory tract and in your lungs, especially all over your body. There's a ton in the intestines, there's some even in the brain, and they're also on these blood vessels. So we think that just like we've always thought about, the virus gets into the body through the nose and throat, which is why you still need to wash your hands, don't touch your face avoid being around people who are coughing. All the standard recommendations and protocol are still the same with this new development. So we still get infected through the respiratory tract. And then the virus travels down into the lungs where it is still causing damage and and pneumonia. But then the unique part is this kind of final step where it does actually get into the blood vessel cells, still activating on those ACE2 receptors on the blood vessel cells. And from there, it can travel everywhere in the body. And so that's why we start seeing these really bizarre symptoms like the COVID toes that people are talking about. So it could be a problem with circulation all the way to your digits, to your fingers and toes. It's why you start seeing the blood clots. It's why we're seeing potentially damage in the intestines and the liver and the kidneys. Really serious diseases cause a lot of inflammation and can cause those organs to shut down just as part of the body's kind of overactive immune response, which is what we thought was happening with COVID-19 to begin with. And that still could be the case, but the evidence is mounting that there's this kind of other route that the virus is using to infect and cause damage in these other organ systems as well. That's why people with these pre-existing conditions, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, heart disease, they're all at higher risk for this because of all that inflammation that's going on there. And learning some of this, it's also making people rethink how to treat this. Early on, there was a lot of talks about antiviral drugs, and maybe that's not the course really to take with this. Maybe you have to treat it differently. That's why for a time people were saying that the ventilators aren't even working the way they thought they were initially. And I want to be clear, I think antivirals still will help. It's still a pretty big question mark, but we do see a little bit of benefit with a drug like remdesivir. I think one issue is how early you give it. So if too much damage has already been caused, if the virus has already spread to the blood vessels, then it might be too late for an antiviral drug. But if you give it early on in the infection, it could really help the immune system defend the virus. But the big question now is how do we treat the symptoms best? And so the respirators, you know, if you put someone on ventilation, it's just helping push air into the lungs. And so when we thought that people weren't getting enough oxygen in their lungs, that was kind of the natural first step to take. But like you said, it didn't help as many people as we thought or we hoped it would. So one issue with the blood vessel damage is that the lungs can't do the normal transfer of oxygen and carbon dioxide into the blood. That's what the blood vessels in the lung are for. They take the good oxygen, they put it into the blood, and they pull the carbon dioxide out, and then your lungs exhale that. But with the damage to the blood vessels, that process is kind of cut short. And so that's why people are still not getting enough oxygen into the blood, even though they're on ventilators. And to be honest, I don't know if there's a good solution or a good treatment for that. You know, it's something that doctors are certainly looking into. But then, like you said, another possible treatment are drugs that actually stabilize endothelial cells and kind of help reinforce them. And so really common drugs like statins and ACE2 or ACE inhibitors can actually help protect those endothelial cells. So that might be one way to prevent some of these symptoms that we're seeing with the blood vessel damage. That's how we've been treating the virus from the very beginning, treating the symptoms and all that. So maybe this is just kind of another thing that we can look toward to help treat the virus and hopefully get people a little more comfortable with it until we can get a vaccine and wider immunity can start presenting itself. But still, for now, we've been hearing this a lot that the SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 does, in fact, affect the blood vessels quite a bit. 
Dana Smith, senior writer at Elemental. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Finally for this week, right now there's over 100 coronavirus vaccine candidates in various stages of testing. And when one finally breaks through, it may not be as simple as one shot and you're done. There's a high likelihood that an eventual vaccine could be a two-dose protocol, given a month or two apart. For more on why you might end up needing two coronavirus shots, we'll speak to Elizabeth Weiss, reporter at USA Today. This is a novel virus, so it's near to human beings, which means we don't have antibodies to it or very near cousins unless you're exposed to SARS or MERS, which hopefully you haven't been. So it looks as if there's about 10 vaccine candidates that are kind of a little further along. They're in human trials. And of those, at least seven are presuming they will need two shots. And you'd get one, you'd probably wait a month to two months and then get a second one. And then you'd be fully immunized and protected. So it wouldn't just be a single jab and you're done. And the way it works is that that first shot would kind of primes the immune system to help it recognize the virus, maybe start getting some antibodies going. And then the second one strengthens that immune response. And as you mentioned, that gives you that immunity for a little bit of time thereafter. Then that's the other piece of it that we don't know yet is how long the immunity that you get from the vaccination will work. I mean, there are some diseases that measles, for example, once you're immunized, you're set for life, polio, smallpox. Um, There are others Influenza, for example, where you have to get vaccinated every year, there's some data that looks, and this goes to MERS, which is a different coronavirus, and we know that people who've had MERS, which is uh, you actually get from camels, people tend to keep antibodies for about three years, and then they start to fade. That doesn't mean that's what will happen with coronavirus. We simply don't know because it only popped up in December, so this is all very, very new. But it could be that you get the 1-2 vaccine series Whenever we get a vaccine, and then maybe in a couple of years, you have to get revaccinated. It's not looking like you'd have to get one every year like you do with the flu. Dr. Fauci has said that other common coronaviruses that give you, you know, the common cold and all that, the immunity mm-hmm. only lasts maybe three to six months. That's why we're always getting it again. But it seems that this COVID 19, the one SARS CoV 2, is a little more stable. So it's not changing as much. Obviously, we still need to learn a lot more about it. But in the meantime, right now, we're finding it it's not changing that much. People talk about, oh, there are various strains and variants out there, but those are actually the really tiny mutations. They don't seem to be affecting at all the virulence or of the virus. It's just there are enough changes that you can say, oh, look, there's one strain. It's like having red hair or black hair. It doesn't mean that you're intrinsically different. You were mentioning how some of the top vaccine candidates, or not top, but just that they're further along in the process right now, about seven of them of the top 10 are considering maybe two shots for this vaccine. One of them, Merck, however, who's developing one, they're hoping they can get a one-shot vaccine. Do we know anything about that one? I have not gotten fully clear on Merck's vaccine. Vaccines historically have been based on either inactivated virus or a killed virus. So you actually take the full viruses or a very small sequence of RNA and you take the killed virus or an inactivated virus and inject it into the person and your body is then exposed to the full gamut of that virus. And so it's able to very quickly ramp up a immune response. And the Chinese, a couple of the Chinese companies, they're also working in killed virus or weakened virus. And then 
The other ones we're seeing, the Moderna, the one that's coming out of Oxford, those are all using new technologies where they're doing one of two things. Either they're taking a little piece of protein that is similar to the spike on the coronavirus and they insert that into the body and then the body can recognize that bit of protein that it would see on the coronavirus if you got infected with it or they're inserting RNA or DNA which then causes the body's own cells to create those bits of protein and so you're not getting exposed to the full virus there and that's one of the reasons why you might need the one-two punch with a um, immunization because you're just seeing a, a piece of the virus Whereas in a couple of the other variants, you're seeing the full virus or your body's being exposed to the full virus. Why this is such important to this story about the vaccine and all is that if you need to do a two-dose vaccine protocol for the entire country, that's going to require a lot of coordination, a lot of record keeping, making sure people are following up and all. There's tons of immunizations that are given to children that are multiple doses, as you mentioned, the measles and a bunch of other ones. But when they're kids, doctor visits are kind of scheduled around those things. And you mentioned in your article, in adults, some of the vaccines that they have that are more than one dose, a lot of people don't get them because they don't follow back up. And the other thing to remember is it's really likely that we're not just going to have one coronavirus vaccine. We're probably going to have a couple. I mean, all these people who are working on it, they're all going to come to market. And there might be one that works better if you're over 65, and there might be one that works better in kids. And so you're going to have to know not just when you got vaccinated, but with which of the vaccines out there you got vaccinated. Because there are probably going to be multiple different vaccines, what this is going to do is we'll have to call on the state immunization registries. State immunization registries were created for pediatric vaccinations because kids get a ton of vaccines. Some of them are even a series of five over the course of childhood. And so they need to keep track of what vaccines they got, when they got them, which one they got, when they're scheduled for the next one. And those registries work really well for children. They tend not to work as well for adults, and they also are state-specific. Some of them are even county and city-specific, so there's 62 of them in the U.S. Well, I think Guam is included in there, too. So there's a lot of them, and talking back and forth is very complicated, so they are trying now to gear up to be ready for this onslaught whenever we do get a vaccine, because we're going to have to have some sort of mechanism. If you think about it, a lot of people work in Washington, D.C., so you might get your first vaccination at the local drugstore, your local CVS. So that's great. But then when it's time for your second vaccine, you might be back home in Maryland or Virginia and you go to your doctor. Well, your doctor needs to know which vaccine you got and when you got it. And the problem is right now, the vaccine registries for Maryland, Washington, D.C. and Virginia, they don't talk to each other. So they're trying to work that out now. We've got some time, and that's the good news. Yeah, I mean, definitely the effort that needs to be undertaken in coordination is going to be really big. But like you said, we have some time until that vaccine gets here, so hopefully we can get it in gear. Elizabeth Weiss, reporter at USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.